Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to another edition of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and this is actually the 20th episode of the podcast dedicated to the journals and history of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott's journals, written back in the 1840s. So I suppose we've reached a, a landmark there, getting to a score, as they say just like to welcome anyone back who's uh, listened before and uh, caught up with the last episode when Will was talking about the various markets that were in Milan at the time. If you are coming to the podcast for the first time, you can find all the previous episodes on every good podcast platform that's available. So if you Google the Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad, it should come to the top of the search results and you'll see it's available on apple podcasts on spotify amazon music youtube as well although uh, it's really just uh, <laughs> me talking in a wavy line but if you want to listen to it on youtube you can and uh, it's hosted by acast so it's on their player as well you can't really not find it <laughs> it's on podbean podbay pod the destroyer any podcast platform pods are us it's out there. So I'll just quickly say my usual blurb about also if you want to make contact or engage with me on social media, you can. There's a Twitter account which is Scott of the Historic and that's at 3G Grand Tour. That's the number three, at 3G Grand Tour. There's a Mastodon account, that's GG Grand Tour. And that's at Scotted at Universadon.com. There's a Facebook page which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. That's the main ways. I should, I think, maybe in future also set up an Instagram account. I'm looking into that at the moment. Probably Twitter is the the easiest way, and uh, it's uh, always very nice to hear any comments or any additional information, expertise that you might have. I'm not a professional historian, and no doubt you may have found errors in some of the things I've said or my rather broad brushstrokes when summarising history. <laughs> but let's face it, pretty well all history is just a sort of interpretation of the facts that you do know and the evidence that you have. That's one thing that doing this has made me realise that uh, everybody's version of history can be slightly different. There's no one truth, as they say. Gosh, got profound there for a moment. So to speak a little bit about this episode coming up, there are some nice things to discuss in it. He's touring the various important buildings of the city and discussing them. There's quite a nice bit where he talks about a encounter he has in Milan Cathedral with the Austrian Viceroy who's in charge of Lombardy Venetia at the time. 
So he attends a ceremony there where all the royal family, or whatever you want to call them from Austria, have come to visit Milan and uh, hold a bit of a flag-waving ceremony, I suppose. So that's quite nice. And then he talks also about uh, an area or a building called the Lazzaretto and its history, which is concerned with the time of the plague in Milan. But the episode begins with him talking about this building called the Hospital Maggiore, which is still in Milan, and it's a Renaissance building, so dating back to the sort of 1400s. And uh, it has this very grand, but also very long, extended facade. So he goes into some description about that and its history and its interior. So I hope you do enjoy the episode. Just to say, additionally, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, that's a really good thing to do. It helps to big up the numbers. (laughs) And uh, also, if you are coming to the podcast for the first time, there are all the previous episodes And uh, there is also an introduction episode as well, which is a bit shorter than the others. But it does help you understand a little bit about the history of the journals and how they were kept in my family for all these years and how they've been passed down my mother's side of the family to me and how I have prepared them for doing this podcast because they've never been published before anywhere. So you guys out there listening are the first to hear them outside of my family. And actually, (laughs) most of my family haven't read them either. I think it's mainly me, my mum and my dad. (laughs) I'll sign off at the end anyway with a bit more contact info. But here we are, episode 20 of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. April 18th. The Hospital Maggiore is a most stupendous establishment near the Corsa de Porta Romana. The front is of great length and contains 64 windows in one range. It has been built at three different periods, the centre being the oldest, and the two additions do not exactly correspond in the style of architecture. The edifice is of red brick with stone mouldings and cornices, and an immense number of medallions of stone interspersed, containing busts in alto relievo. The major part of the brickwork is finely and elaborately executed, but the sculptures are of mediocre quality. In the entrance hall are some fine marble statues of former benefactors to the institution. The interior of the building is divided into nine courts, the sent one being considerably the largest and they are entirely surrounded by covered arcades of two storeys, allowing the patients air and exercise without exposure to the weather. I was never able to ascertain the number of patients in the hospital, but I understood they amounted to several thousands, and it is always full, as to be sick or meet with an accident is sufficient recommendation to be admitted within its walls. This institution, when first commenced, was entirely supported by private contributions, but since the restoration of the Austrian power, The whole of the expense has been borne by the state, but its character does not stand in such high estimation as those of the brothers and sisters. William is referring here to the two other hospitals he mentioned earlier, one run by the monks. Hospital della Buona Fratelli. And one run by the nuns. Hospital della Buona Sorelli. 
The Corsa de Porta Romana is a long and wide street running from the gate of that name to the cathedral. There are also some fine palazzos in this street, mostly in the style of architecture of the age of Louis Fourteenth, a style which not coming within the strict rules of architectural proportion, yet allows the vast diversity of shape and ornament. And for the interior decoration, its graceful and flowing lines are more pleasing to the eye than the stiff and straight ones of the Grecian and Roman orders. There is no part of the city that shows its former greatness more than does the Corsa de Porta Romana. The vast range of palazzos and their colossal proportions, most of them still called by the same name that they bore three centuries ago, and though greatly diminished in splendour, they yet convey to the mind a forcible illustration of the riches and greatness of this city in the Middle Ages. The marble staircases and chimney pieces, the richly painted walls and ceilings, the profusion of carved work and gilding that these buildings contain is wonderful. Piazzas, arcades, fountains and gardens surprise, delight and astonish the spectator, and far surpass those of more modern erection, who though perhaps of more dazzling exterior, yet want in the internal comfort and grandeur of the older ones. There are three statues of bishops placed upon pedestals in this street, one in front of the church of St. Nazaro, one on the bridge of the canal, and the other at the junction of the Corso with the Borga di Porta Vicentina. In this street are also two theatres, the Theatre Carcano, which is something similar to Astley's Amphitheatre, as they make use of horses in the performance of melodrama and the Theatre Dentatio for light comedy and interlude. This is a fine large building with a Doric colonnade and pediment. The performances at both these places are very respectable, and they are generally well attended by the middle classes of society. At a little distance within the gate is a large building used as a dogana or custom house, where all goods bought from Germany exclusively are deposited on their arrival in the city. Outside the gate is a very respectable suburb and several houses of entertainment, and professing good gardens. At a short distance from this street is the Church of St Alexander, a large and noble building in the form of a cross. The approach is by a flight of steps reaching the whole length of the west front. At the intersection of the nave and cross aisles, a noble dome rises to a considerable height. It is painted in the first style of art, in compartments representing some of the principal events of the Acts of the Apostles. There are also many fine chapels within the building, and a great many highly finished and valuable paintings, and also some good statues. So I thought I'd talk a little bit at this point about some of the buildings that William has just mentioned here. Firstly, this grand hospital that he calls the Hospital Maggiore. It is known more widely these days as Car Grande, and... It's not the hospital anymore, it's actually one of the headquarter buildings of the University of Milan, but it was the main hospital in Milan right up until 1939, and it's a very old building. Construction started way back in 1456. Basically, it was the first Duke of Milan, who I think was called Franco Sforza. Sforza. Franco Sforza. That's that name again. I can never say. Anyway, he was the first Duke of Milan and he wanted to kind of have a convalescing place for uh, people and hospital. And so he got an architect called um, Filaretti to design something along these lines. It was a very long time under construction. Actually, it wasn't finally finished completely until about 1805. This in part explains why William says some bits are not architecturally in line with other parts of it but the, the main front facade of it is this very grand looking terracotta 
uh, well, red brick facade with terracotta mullions and inserts and things and statues as well. Uh, there's a statue of St Ambrose above the main entrance of it and these slightly odd later additions which are circular architectural features that then have the head of a historical person or grand person or saint sticking out of them so it's rather like <laughs> it's a row of these kind of heads sticking out like portholes on the front of the building it certainly is a grand building i suppose if you happen to be in that part of milan today worth wandering by just have a quick look apparently it got bombed very badly in the second world war parts of it anyway and they literally rebuilt it brick by brick and they'd say it was an amazing job because you'd never known that it had been bombed but i think the facade was fortunately wasn't affected by the bombing it's kind of it has these uh, courtyard areas it's almost in the pattern of a cross and it has these cloistered areas behind where as william says the patients could stroll out of the rain and bright sunshine now the next thing that he mentions are a couple of theatres that are here. He mentions the Theatre Cacano. There is a Theatre Cacano still there. I think it may be the original building, not quite sure. William makes this comparison to Astley's Theatre in London because it employed horses in the entertainment of the attendees. There's not a huge amount I can find about this in the actual Theatre of Cacano itself. It's basically, it was an opera house and... There is some reference to circus-like performances being made there, so I'm sure there were animals there, but I don't know if William actually ever went to this theatre. I've got a feeling he might not have done. and had just heard that they had circus-type performances there because it's, it's not really like Astley's Theatre in its interior. It's a much more traditional-looking opera house or theatre, whereas Astley's, which was on the South Bank or Lambeth Road in London, was very much built like a circus um, you know, it had a kind of ring in the centre where the performances went on and the horses and the clowning and the acrobatics all took place very much as it would in a tented circus. But Astley's was a solid walled structure, but with a circus-like interior. It's quite an interesting thing, actually, Astley's. It was burnt down and rebuilt several times. I think each time it got rebuilt, it was ever so slightly grander. As I say, it was on the Lambeth Road in London. Apparently there is a plaque there now, but uh, other than that, there's no real evidence of it. And there's some etchings I've seen of performances taking place there with horses. Apparently um, Jane Austen mentions it in one of her novels. But what I did find is one of these kind of... <laughs> internet research rabbit holes or rabbit warrens that you end up going down was that one performer who performed there was a man called Pablo Fank whose real name was William Darby but he's I think certainly quite an interesting character I just came across in doing this research because he was a black horse rider performer circus entrepreneur who made his name in Victorian society and became you know, pretty well known for his performances and, and actually set up his own circus. And that toured the north of England and uh, you know he became very well known for his equestrian skills as a rider and performer. I think he was born in Norwich, they say, but uh, it's kind of a bit uncertain about his very early life. But he joined the circus and um, he was... Uh, apprentice to a gentleman called William Batty who was also another big circus kind of owner and in fact took over Astley's as a venue anyway this uh, Pablo Fank as he became known a good name isn't it Pablo Fank 
anyway, he, he became a well-known performer in William Batty's circuses. And then he basically set up his own circuses as well and, and um, did very well, became quite famous. He performed in front of the Queen. And there's quite a nice etching of him at Astley's Amphitheatre that was done in 1847 of him on his famous black mare. This was his favourite horse that he used to ride. And uh, it's doing those sort of dressage, looks like it's doing those sort of dressage movements that you see at the Olympics, basically. It's kind of also skipping from side to side and, and all that. But moving on again to then another little adjunct of interesting information about him and further along in history... The well-known Beatles song for the benefit of Mr. Kai on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. That song for the benefit of Mr. Kite. All the words from that song, which were written by John Lennon, were actually taken from a poster that John Lennon bought in an antique shop. And it was one of Pablo Fank's circuses that was advertising the fact that a benefit performance was being made for Mr. Kite. And in fact, Pablo Fank or William Darby, he sounds to have been quite a philanthropist, actually. He apparently did many, many performances which were benefit performances, not only for performers in the circus, which you can imagine they didn't have things like pensions and stuff. So he would quite regularly put on performances for his performers, but he would also put on performances to raise money for local causes, local societies and stuff like that. So he became very well known as a sort of philanthropic circus proprietor as well so yeah it's just quite an interesting character but all the words literally in a way john lennon didn't write that song because <laughs> virtually all the words are taken from this poster that he found in an antique shop in seven oaks so that's actually i got a bit diverted really this is not really milan also, oh sorry just to mention church of st alexander there that William mentions that is still there. I describe it as a small Baroque version of St Paul's Cathedral. It's got these two bell towers at the front and a dome, as William describes, but it's not as big as, obviously, St Paul's, and it's surrounded tightly by the buildings. It's not standing alone like uh, St Paul's Cathedral, but it's kind of, in, in appearance, it looks a bit like St Paul's Cathedral in London. Oh, yes, just sorry. Lastly, the Theatre Lentazio that he mentions. Now... There's a, an account of it by another man, funny enough, who was a, a man called Henry Shaw who happened to be in Milan at the same time. And he describes it as a dirty and disagreeable place. But William seems to think it's quite a respectable theatre. There's not a huge amount about it. I don't think that is there in Italy anymore. But there is one little reference to it regarding a man called Giovanni Riccardi who was a violinist, but actually later became more famous as a publisher of classical music. And the company is still going today. But this Riccardi business that they set up became very well known for publishing the scores of all the operas and musical performances that first happened in the opera houses in Milan. And later, obviously, other venues, so many of them you can imagine from Puccini and Verdi and people like Wagner and stuff. So Mr. Giovanni Riccardi was the founder of this company and it's still going today and it's still a big music publishing company, particularly concerned with classical music. But uh, there's some little reference of him performing at the theatre, Lentazio. I certainly think old Pablo Fank... <laughs> No, why? That just makes me really chuckle that name. But Pablo Fank, as a character to look up, I think there have been biographies of him, but considering he was a, a black man in early to mid-19th century Victorian 
society seems to have been able to establish himself very much in that society and be a successful businessman and performer and was highly regarded by many many people certainly he must have been an early pioneer in black history in victorian england there's a description here of one of pablo fank's performances that was taken from the illustrated london news as ever with victorian descriptions it's a bit over the top but anyway it says mr pablo has trained his black mare to do the most extraordinary feats of the menage or dressage an art hitherto considered to belong only to the french and german professors of equitation and his style certainly far exceeds anything that has ever yet been brought from the continent April 21st. This being the anniversary of the accession of the Emperor Ferdinand to the throne, Grand Mass was celebrated in the cathedral on the occasion at which the Viceroy, with his whole family and all the authorities, military and civil, and a great many of the nobility were present. An immense canopy of crimson and white cloth, bordered with gold fringe and supported on lofty columns, stretched from the central door far into the piazza, to allow the carriages to drive underneath it. I entered the cathedral at an early hour on purpose to witness the ceremony, and the church, with the exception of the space set apart for the royal family and the authorities, was even then densely crowded. I had not been there many minutes before the nobility began to arrive in rapid succession. The gentlemen in full court costume, and the ladies attired in the first style of elegance and fashion, and as none of the females wore bonnets, the display of diamonds and jewellery was immense. At length, the sound of military music gave notice that the representative of royalty was approaching. A long procession then moved down the centre aisle of the nave to the principal entrance. First came four boys in short surplices. So they're linen cassocks, basically, that the young church boys would have been wearing. Bearing the censers, burning incense. Others bearing immense silver candlesticks with wax tapers burning. Then followed the choristers, chanting in solemn strains to the distant tones of the organ. Next, the priests, to the number of 42, the lowest in degree walking first. Last, under a canopy of crimson velvet, and set with gold fringe, and borne by eight men, walked the venerable Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, wearing his archiepiscopal mitre, resplendent with costly gems, his long train, borne by six priests, and his cross of solid silver borne aloft before him. On arriving at the great west entrance, the procession formed into two lines, with the exception of the Archbishop, who stood in the midst near the door which was thrown open to its full extent. The Viceroy having made his appearance with his suite, he proceeded up the aisle directly behind the Archbishop, followed by the Vice-Queen and his family, and as this was the first time I had seen him, I will endeavour to give a description of him and his lady and their children. His Royal Highness, Renaria, he was the Archduke Rainer, I might have written that wrong, so anyway, it's the Archduke Rainer, Joseph of Austria, and he was uh, alive from 1783 to uh, 1853. His Royal Highness Rainer, Viceroy of the Kingdom of Lombardy-Venetia, and Archduke of the Austrian Empire, uncle to the present and a brother of the late Emperor Francis I. He is a tall, plain-looking man, at that time from 55 to 60 years of age, and with the marks of great benevolence and kindness on his countenance. 
which is fully borne out by his excellent character. He was dressed in the military uniform of Austria, which is white, and wore upon his breast several stars and insignias of knighthood. Then came the vice-queen, a fine, tall and commanding figure, attired in all the garb of royalty, her long train borne by six ladies, and looking every inch the queen. I am not aware of ever seeing a person who appeared so easy and graceful under the circumstances, and who seemed at the same time to think it a mere everyday occurrence of such matters, and the gleam of whose eye seemed to say, I am one of the great ones of the earth, I was born to rule, you to obey. Then followed their five sons and three daughters, the females fine, tall, stout, and handsome women. Since that time the eldest has been married to the eldest son of the king of Sardinia, two of the sons, fine young men, and holding commissions in the army. The other three were boys from eleven to sixteen years of age. Their suite were clad in various uniforms, and the servants were numerous, and their liveries splendid. The scene viewed from a slight elevation, which I had been fortunate enough to obtain, presented a coup d'eil, that's a glimpse, a coup d'eil to the eye, which is not often met with the vast concourse of people, the brilliant assemblage of costumes and colours, rank and beauty, the stupendous temple in which they were met together for the ostensible purpose of returning thanks to the king of kings, and the life and welfare of their monarch. And I could but think that the people of Lombardy are particularly fortunate, however galling it may be to their national pride in being called a conquered people, that they have fallen under the rule so mild and paternal as the Austrian government certainly is. For with the exception of passports, which are common to all the continental states, Prussia and Switzerland excepted, they enjoy as great a degree of liberty as any nation under the sun, and the right of property respected in an equal degree. I am also of the opinion from my acquaintance with their character that they are totally unfit to govern themselves, and that were the Austrians to leave and give up possession of the country, that scene so lately witnessed in old Spain would be the result. And though the priests of the Romish church certainly exercised very great influence over the lower classes, and especially the peasantry, Napoleon, by the dissolution of the monasteries and the appropriation of a large part of the revenues of the cathedrals and churches, and which have not been restored by the present Austrian government, effectively curbed the power of the church to work so much mischief as formerly, and thus became one of the greatest benefactors to Italy in modern times and also by Napoleon's establishment of schools for the diffusion of a better and more useful class of knowledge, namely directing attention to the sciences, to a better system of agriculture, and to a superior method of developing the resources of this fine country. Went to the Theatre Olorà La Scala in the evening, which was brilliantly illuminated and filled to overflowing, the Viceroy and all his court being present to witness the representation of the opera of Anna Bellina an opera by Donizetti. The greatest enthusiasm appeared to prevail the entire evening, during which all the national airs, both of Austria and Italy, were performed by the orchestra, assisted by a military band. Right, I thought I ought to stop here just to explain some of these things that William's talking about, and <laughs> his opinion of the Lombardy-Venetian people as well, as being totally unfit to rule themselves. First of all, just to explain the situation that William is attending at the cathedral with the Viceroy. So Archduke Joseph Rayner, who was the Viceroy. So basically, as I've explained before, Lombardy-Venetia at this time is being ruled by the Austrian government. And Archduke Rayner happens to be the brother of the Austrian Emperor, 
Francis II, who's also known as the Holy Roman Emperor and everything. It's all a bit confused. Anyway, Francis II declared himself Emperor of Austria or the Austrian Empire. Seems almost just to make sure his status was equal to Napoleon, who, of course, named himself Emperor of France and Italy a bit earlier. So his brother, his younger brother, Joseph Rayner, is put in charge of looking after Lombardy, Venetia. I mean, I don't think he really did very much, you know, to be honest. I think he still spent most of his time in Austria and occasionally, as William is describing, he would deign to visit Milan with his family, put on a bit of a royal show, get waved at by the crowds, and uh, then bugger off back to Austria again. I kind of get the impression. I don't know how really involved he was in the day-to-day running, This is one of these occasions where it is quite interesting reading William's observations about it because (laughs) you could say he gets it so completely wrong politically. (laughs) He completely reads the situation in an opposite way as I think was really happening and what turned out to be the case. Describing the Archduke and the Austrian government as being sympathetic and kind, ruling over these Lombardy-Venetian subjects. And then he goes on to say how Napoleon improved things in Italy because basically he weakened the power of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, actually, all these things at the time amongst the population of Milan and Lombardy of Venetia, they felt exactly the opposite. They didn't want to be ruled by the Austrians. They resented the fact that the Austrians had imposed or had continued to weaken the power of the church. And they imposed heavy taxes on them. So they were very, really, they were very disgruntled. And they weren't happy and they didn't consider the Austrian rulers to be benevolent and all this as, as William seems to suggest they were. I kind of can't help feeling there's a sort of element of this um, Englishman abroad, slightly pompous view of things from William. And certainly this line he uses being totally unfit to rule themselves. You could just very simply interpret that, that he just thinks they're not up to the job because they're, uh, I don't know, <laughs> not... not mentally capable but i don't think he really quite means it in that way you have to put it in the whole context of what was happening in europe at the time and when he refers to there would be scenes like we've seen recently in old spain this is a very complicated thing so i won't go into it very heavily but he's sort of essentially talking about in spain what would be described as the carlist wars Pretty well from about 1800 right up to 1870, Spain's government was in turmoil. There were various members of the monarchy, factions of the monarchy, who were put in charge or acquired power and then lost power. Some of it was linked to the, funnily enough, to the Mexican Revolution, where uh, Spain itself spent a lot of money trying to fight that war, got into financial difficulty. Basically, I would say Google the Carlist Wars and try and understand it. But it's why William's saying that is that Spain was still in the midst of this very disorganised government situation where there were lots of factions, some linked to Queen Isabella, who actually had come to the throne at a very young age, and her father, and factions with his brother, who also wanted to be king or had ambitions to be king of Spain. So... You could kind of slightly look at it very simply as a more liberal versus a more monarchist sort of factions going on. And also in the wars, we, Britain and France, get involved as well, trying to back one side or the other. So uh, we tended to try and back the more liberal factions in Spain. But anyway, that's why William, I think really he means the Lombardy Venetians wouldn't 
if they gained independence then or were no longer ruled by Austria, it would be similar to what's happened in Spain. But actually, he it's sort of wrong there as well. Austrian rule wasn't popular in Milan and Lombardy Venetia at all, and amongst the Milanese, steadily got more and more disgruntled, and in fact, not that long after William leaves, just a few years after that, in 1848, there's what was called the Five Days of Milan, which was a massive uprising against the Austrian rulers by the local population, and that in turn was the beginnings of the Italian Revolution and ultimately Italian unification. So in these situations, sometimes we'll... I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? People's views on things are complicated. They're not one-dimensional. And sometimes William comes over as very establishment and, well, you know, they can't really craft themselves. It's better to have the monarchy in charge and all this sort of thing. Sometimes, as you'll discover later on in the journals, he can be very, very liberal and profound in thinking about the uh, inequalities that there are in humanity. So people are not one-dimensional, but in this particular case, Will is a bit one-dimensional, and he certainly didn't (laughs) read the room, as they say, very well. It does strike me, having thought about this, (laughs) whether, you know, the locals, because he doesn't stay that long in charge, of this railway in Milan or in charge of the engineering side of it anyway I wouldn't say he's actually in charge of the whole world but in charge of the engineering side of it and I just wonder (laughs) if he wasn't well I can tell he probably wasn't very popular with the locals I think he probably came over as a bit bossy (laughs) and um well, he may well have been quite happy to have seen the back of him when he left in 1842 um (laughs) Later on, he says certain things about the locals that aren't very complimentary either. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I suspect there may well have been quite a bit of whispering behind the back of a hand in Italian when old William walked into the uh, workshop <laughs> to boss them around and tell them what they were doing wrong. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe they loved him. I don't know. There's not any great leaving party when William decides to jack it in. I think there are other other reasons he leaves the railway as well. I think the main reason is that it doesn't become the sort of important railway that I think at the time probably William thought it was going to be because other railway lines get built in Milan that actually become more strategically important in terms of transportation. That's a bit of speculation. For he's a jolly good fellow. (laughs) To some degree, William maybe epitomises that rather imperialistic view of the world that I'm sure quite a few Brits had at the time. The greatest gift is to be born an Englishman. (laughs) Attitude to the world. The Ancient Castle of Milan. This edifice was erected during the proud days of the Italian republics, and was at that time, before the introduction of gunpowder and the age of shot, shells and rockets, a place of vast strength, but at the present day would be battered to pieces in a few hours. It is a place of considerable size, the form being square, with a round tower at each corner, on each of which is a solitary gun now mounted. The interior is divided into one large and two smaller courts. A great number of modern buildings were erected within its walls by Napoleon, who instead of strengthening its defences, converted it into barracks for both horse and foot, with proper granaries and storehouses, and it is capable of containing a vast number of troops. 
In the front, and on both sides of the castle, is a very extensive plot of ground called the Foro, laid out in circles, and stately avenues, planted with fine chestnut trees, and most of them being of great size. Seats are also placed at different parts on the verdant turf. This is an exceedingly delightful spot in the summer, and is much frequented at that season, as the trees afford a grateful shelter from the rays of the burning sun. The trees and carriage drive also extend entirely around the Piazza di Armi. The amphitheatre or arena, that's the arena Savica that we discussed in an earlier episode, the amphitheatre or arena was erected by Napoleon on the plan of the great Colosseum at Rome and designed as a place of amusement for the public. It is of an oval form, 255 and a half English yards in length and 140 in breadth. In the centre stand four lofty obelisks, and from the level space the seats or standing places covered with beautiful turf rise in regular steps about two feet in height to the top of the walls, which are about thirty feet from the ground. And a broad rampart runs round the hole planted with trees. This place is capable of containing thirty thousand spectators, and during the empire of Napoleon some of the grandest spectacles of modern times were exhibited within its walls, in the shape of tournaments, chariot races, etc., it can also be filled with water in a few minutes for spectacles on that element. It is now used in the summer for exhibitions of horsemanship, rope dancing, chariot races and fireworks. From May till September, there are generally performances every Sunday afternoon and evening, and it is generally attended by a vast concourse of people. It contains a great number of entrances, so at the conclusion of the performances, the people can disperse at a very short period. The principal entrance is a very fine piece of work, the arches of lofty and noble proportions, and the sculpture of the columns and basso-reliefs admirably executed. On one, and projecting from the main wall outwards, is a large and lofty building containing covered galleries and elegant seats for the royal family and nobility. At one end are stables for the horses and storerooms for the boats and chariots. It is the opinion of most travellers that there are no monuments of modern art so well calculated to give one an idea of those ancient times as the Circo de Soupon and the arena. They certainly are magnificent ornaments to Milan, and will hand down to prosperity, in spite of all their alterations, the name of that great man who first planned and commanded their creation. Napoleon, obviously. <laughs> as I said, this is the arena Savica that we discussed in a previous episode these days it's mainly used for a bit of football a bit of athletics and bands like radiohead and the cure have played there as a music venue just a thing that william mentions here this thing about how the stadium can be filled with water and there is a reference to naval battles being reconstructed at the time as a form of entertainment along with chariot races and things like that early on in its history William says the arena could be filled in a matter of minutes with water. I find that very hard to believe, because it's an enormous volume of water that would be needed. Maybe it was a smaller area that they reconstructed these naval battles on or filled with water. I can't imagine it was a whole arena, because even now I would think it would take at least two or three days to fill it with water. Moving on, the Lazzaretto is a square 380 yards in length and 365 in width just outside the Porta Orientale. 
This space is surrounded by buildings, one storey in height, with a covered arcade running entirely round the interior. The other part is covered with grass, and in the centre of it is a chapel of an octagon form. This place was erected at the time the plague committed such ravages in Europe, and the city of Milan in former times has suffered much from its ravages. After this, there was the erection of the lazaretto, and as soon as a person was seized with this dreadful disease, they were conveyed here where they were attended to in the best mode they knew at the period, and strictly confined till restored to health, or death released them from their sufferings. The outside is surrounded by a wide and deep canal filled with water, and only contained two entrances at that period, which were strictly guarded by soldiers to prevent contamination from the infected. But happily, we now live in better times, and the plague is now scarcely known in Europe. The buildings, being the property of the municipality, are at present let as dwellings to the lower classes, and it is scarcely possible to imagine the disgusting and filthy sight they now present. For the lower classes of Italians are dirty and lazy in their houses to the last degree, never thinking of washing a floor or clearing away the cobwebs and dirt, and the lazaretto now presents a site as likely to originate the very disease it was erected to prevent. I have seen few places that would make a prettier spot if the rank grasses were converted into gardens and the houses cleaned, repaired and whitewashed, their covered arcades serving to shelter them from the too fervid rays of the noontide sun, and to sit under and enjoy the balmy air of a summer evening in this delightful climate. This is the last bit of explaining what William's talking about in this part of Milan. We did touch on it before, but the castle Sforza, or Milan Castle, whatever you want to call it, it's this big square castle with circular turrets at each corner. It uh, was originally built in 1450 by Francesco I. There were Sforza or Visconti members and dukes before this time and there was a, some sort of a military building there or castle before he began work on it but when he became the first Duke of Milan he instigated building this castle it does say in some parts the ramparts of the walls are 23 feet thick which is pretty impressive so although William says it would easily be in his time demolished by modern artillery I think it would still take a fair amount of um, explosive power to demolish it as William says, it became less and less of a military location or asset and became more of a residence for the Dukes. And as various additions were made and various alterations by the subsequent Dukes, it became grander and more like a palace than a, a castle. There are some frescoes by Leonardo da Vinci in the castle of Sforza. I think the most famous one is one called the Sala dell'Assa. That's Hall of Axis in English. And uh, on the ceiling of that room, uh, Leonardo had drawn pictures of fruit and vegetables and various kind of images like that. I don't think there's many images of people. It's kind of more decorative work. These days, there's about four or five museums within its walls. So I think there's a museum dedicated to musical instruments. There's a, an Egyptian museum there and various others. So it's very much become a cultural, I suppose, centre in Milan. William mentions the Cirque de Simplon or the Circus of Simplon when he describes this area. Imagine looking at it on plan, so looking down. It's a square shape with circular castle bits on each corner. And then around this, in William's time, it was just a great big circle, as he describes it, which was a park where these big chestnut trees that he mentions were placed. 
that's now changed because later in the 19th century, around about the 1880s, the whole park was tied in together with the Parc Simplon, which is where the Arch of Peace is. So that was merged together with the park that had been around the castle. So they were almost like combined. So now that's all one big park area, the Parc Simplon. But at William's time, it was still this separate circular park around the castle. I won't go into all the history of it because it dates, just say, right back to 1450. But, you know, you can imagine it was mainly in the ownership of this Swarza family or the Duke of Milan down the years. And obviously when Napoleon was in charge, he appropriated it for certain things that he wanted to use it for. And then the Austrians did as well. I think they put cannon on the turret. Moving on then to this building that he calls the Lazzaretto. This was built around a similar era, erected between 1488 and 1508. And as William says, it's a square area or square building. And in it, on each side of the square, were lots of little, almost like cells, a bit like a prison, I suppose, but little houses or little individual apartments that had been segregated in which to house people who either had the plague or were suspected to have the plague or were getting over getting the plague. And it was linked to the Hospital Maggiore that I mentioned earlier on in this podcast. There were waves of the plague every, I don't know, it seems like every 20 years or something when these kept happening. So they thought this would be a good idea to have an area where people with the plague could be placed and convalesce or die, as William mentions. I suppose in a way a little bit like a kind of leper colony that was close to the city of Milan where plague victims could be put in the centre of it, there's this octagonal, what became a church. It's a building, I'd almost say, like a bandstand originally. And when Napoleon was in charge of Milan, he had it converted back from being a church or consecrated building to a uh, temple with a statue of liberty inside. I think it was called the Altar of the Fatherland. Anyway, the Lazzaretto gets used as a place of convalescence for the plague victims several times down the centuries up to William's time but by the time it gets to William's era the plagues as William says is no longer really a problem and it becomes redundant as a hospital. William mentions the canal around it this was uh, another reason why it was originally chosen because it was felt that that was a bit of a way of additionally separating it from the rest of Milan but as I say, by the time William's there, it's been hired out and these little apartments or maisonettes or whatever you want to call them have been leased to quite poor people in the city. So railway workers and uh, market traders and things like that. I don't think they're that poor, but there's uh, some pictures of about 1880 actually of some residents are looking out and it does look quite run down and quite poor. As William describes it, uh, it's very not very nice in his opinion with the Italian residents not being good at cleaning their houses. Bear in mind, it's probably a man who I certainly think they would have been the sort of family who may well have had servants, put it that way. I think the next generation down, if I remember looking at the census, there were servants in the house or housekeepers. You know, a lot of these families would at least have like one live-in housekeeper or two. So it's all very well to criticise <laughs> what your houses look like when you don't have servants, isn't it, to do the cleaning for you. And also, you know, they were very run down by this time. There's a little section of this building that still exists in Milan, 
a little stretch of about five of these compartments and I think that is now a Greek Orthodox church and as I mentioned this church octagonal building that was in the centre of the square is also still there and it was re-consecrated as a church by a nearby parish I think to be turned into a church again I don't think it probably gets much use as a church but it, it could be so there's only these little bits of it left now I think someone else said there was a bit that got taken down and reconstructed at someone's grand house outside of Milan. But they're the only existing architectural evidence of it having existed. Eventually, rather than it being repaired and being made a nice place in which to sit out of the noonday sun, as William describes it, it was actually demolished in 1882. That was because part of the north section of it was demolished to make space for a new railway line and then a nearby station i think actually milan's first big proper railway station so the coming of the railways really put an end to the the lazaretto Right, that's the end of this episode of Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I say, I think there were some quite interesting bits in there, particularly about the Austrian Vice Roy and his family. Just to reiterate again, if you do want to in any way contact me, Twitter is a good way to do it. That's um, Scott the Historic, and that's at 3G Grand Tour. And... Uh, by all means, do tell your friends as well. Spread the word, if you can, about a grand tour with my great-great-granddad. Because its listenership is slowly climbing, but it's still quite a small and, how should I say, exclusive club. So uh, you could spend all day on social media promoting things. But to be honest, it takes me most of my spare time just to get each episode done as much as I can. But if you certainly have an interest in history and 19th century history, or you know anyone who is interested in 19th century history, then I'd like to think this would be their bag, as they say. So that's it. Once again, thanks very much for listening. For those of you that have, it is greatly appreciated. And it is a pleasure to be able to bring these, by their very nature, unique reflections on history from a time nearly 200 years ago. Mm-hmm.